This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. Do you ever wonder how the best leaders make everyone around them smarter? What if we told you that every single day, in spite of your best intentions, you were accidentally diminishing the capabilities of the people in your world, putting a lid on the ceiling of their achievement? What if there was a way that you could take that lid off and not only could they reach their potential today, but because we're humans and because we can learn, we can become smarter, you can multiply their possibilities moving forward. What would be possible in your world if that were the case? It's a big concept. And in the one thing we teach you to think big and then to go small, to get clear on that two-inch domino that you can knock over, that if you knocked it over consistently over time would lead to extraordinary results. That's why we're excited to bring you this episode that was originally part of our One Thing webinar series where every month we feature a best-selling author. And this month we featured the author of Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. This is a book I have now read three times. It was recommended to me by the president of the coaching company we're in partnership with, Abe Shreve. And we are very excited to bring you this conversation with New York Times best-selling author, Liz Wiseman. You know, you've had a very interesting career. You were an executive at Oracle, um, yet you were put in the position of being a leader very early on. Talk to us about that. Oh, I was I was thrown into leadership as a child, and you know, it was... <laughs> you you are the inspiration for Boss Baby. I I, I am Boss Baby, and okay. and I'm I think I was probably 24, maybe I just had my 25th birthday when they're like, hey, you. You're now in charge of training for the company. And uh, we were probably about a 6,000 person company at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is an Oracle. And, and then it's like, hey, Larry Elson wants a university. We need you to go build a university for Oracle. And you know, I'm thinking, first of all, this is an adult job. Like, I, I get, this is a job that an adult should be in, like someone with gray hair. This is not a job for a kid just a year and a half out of college. And nobody seemed to care about this but me. So, you know, it's like you get thrown in and you say, okay, well, it's time to really grow up as a leader and it's time to get comfortable being, I think, woefully underqualified for what was a pretty big job. Well, you you learned to just be good at that. Well, you fast forward over a very long successful career with Oracle. You're now the CEO of the Wiseman Group where you dive deep into researching and creating amazing content around leadership. And the idea behind the book of multipliers is that you have gone out and studied how the best leaders make everyone smarter and specifically how we can go about either multiplying the possibilities of the people on our team or the ways that we diminish the people on our team. What does it mean to be a diminisher? What does it mean to be a multiplier? And why should a diminisher strive to become a multiplier? You know, it's interesting. So the whole book of multipliers actually came out of a one thing moment. So I had left Oracle mm-hmm. and I left with this, this observation and a nagging question. And then I had all this free space because I had just left this job that I was very comfortable in. And essentially, I had one thing to figure out, which was the answer to this question of why is it that some leaders who are really smart 
kind of engender smart and intelligence in others. And then other leaders who are very bright themselves can end up just sucking the life out of a group. And I, you know, I think we've all seen a leader come into a room and suck the air out of the room and the energy. And it's like, you feel people holding back and playing safe. And it's almost like you see people almost like kind of like shrinking around these leaders. And I saw it over and over. And I was so curious, like, why is it that some leaders cause other people to be big and other leaders cause people to be small? And what I found is that these leaders do very different things and they get radically different kinds of results from people around them where these diminishers get less than half mm-hmm. of people's capability and and these multiplier leaders get virtually all of it and then people grow and become more capable around them and and I think what I saw at first was this like incredible economic argument like wow there are so many people inside of corporations who are brought in because they're smart but they're stuck under these diminishing leaders and they're only able to give a fraction of that intelligence now the company is still paying full price. They're still paying like retail rates for talent, but yet they're getting maybe 50 cents on the dollar. Mm. And so I think my first look at this was, wow, there's this economic gain from being able to use people to the full capability that they hired them at. But when I dug in deeper, like the reasons to lead this way were so much bigger, um, more innovation, more engagement more agility, um, you know, more inclusiveness. Yeah. How do we identify where we are diminishing? Because I've, I've at least going down this this journey of self-discovery, which I think part of the reason I really wanted to have Kaylin on here is I first read the book about a month before she came on board. And I know that I'm the type of person who's highly assertive. I move really fast. And at times I can be reactive, which is not the greatest thing as a leader. And I wanted to make sure that when I was showing up in my relationship with her, that I was being incredibly purposeful and thoughtful, that I was never micromanaging and that I was coaching her to her possibilities. How do you encourage somebody to identify where they are diminishing in their lives today? I can only answer this with a few confessions. So um, confessions of a social science researcher. Um, <laughs> I feel like I have the right collar on for this. Um, I, I told you, you we're going to have so much fun today. <laughs> am, I, am I blushing yet about, you know, my confession? So when I started this research, I, I saw these very extreme leaders, these, these amazing multiplier leaders that I aspired to be like, that I was at my best around that you know, that I found in the research that inspired me. And then these diminishers that were tyrannical, um, Mm -hmm. narcissistic, they're leaders who like took up a lot of space. They were sort of egocentric and it seemed like kind of a black and white thing, sort of a night and day difference between these two leaders. And then as I really got into it, I could see that those were the extremes, the poles, if you will. But what I I noticed, it was like um, a bit of a plot twist in the research when you know when you're watching a movie and you get to that part in a really good movie where you realize the good guys are the bad guys mm-hmm. you're like oh this is more complex than i thought and the plot twist was that most of the diminishing that's happening inside of our corporations isn't coming from the tyrannical you know narcissistic empire builder micromanager these sort of overbearing and oppressive leaders. Like they were kind of interesting to study and write about. Most of the diminishing is coming from the good guys, 
the the well-intended leaders, like good people trying to be good bosses. They, you know, they hire someone, they want to coach them to their possibilities, as, as you said, but yet they're having a diminishing effect with the best of intentions. And I, I call these these leaders accidental diminishers. And and you know, and so I've stopped wondering who, and I really legitimately have stopped wondering like who's a diminisher and who's a multiplier. And I spend more of my time thinking about what brings out the diminisher in every one of us. Mm. Like I've yet to find someone who doesn't have a diminishing streak. That's right. And you know, and I think some ways, Jeff, it was and this is part where the confession might come in a little bit. You know, as I I put this book out in the world back in 2010. You know, I think I had a secret little fear that, wow, I wonder if there are people out there who think I'm a diminisher. Like, am I one of these multiplier leaders? Like, am I going to be on a a podcast someday, like talking to you and have someone call in and say, you know, Liz, uh, this is Mark. (laughs) Remember me? Remember me? Yeah. Like, remember me? Like the person that you like shattered, shattered, fired, like, and then I kind of worried that there would be people out there who'd say, no, I experienced you a different way. And, and I've realized that I do have a diminishing streak and I spend more time thinking about what are the events or situations or or people who bring out my diminisher and how do I, I see that and how do I recognize the things that trigger rescuing that trigger always on kind of energy. How do I see it and how do I avert? How do I turn what might be a diminishing moment into a multiplier moment? So to answer your question, how do people see it? You see it best when you look in the mirror and you say, how might I with the best of intentions be causing other people to hold back or Mm. play it safe? It's not typically because we're too bossy, too controlling. Sometimes it's we're too helpful. Sometimes it's we're too compassionate. I don't know that I want to go on the record and say we shouldn't be compassionate, but you know, as leaders, really to pull out great work from other people, we have to be able to stand back and watch a little bit of suffering happening. Mm-hmm. You know, as people zigzag their way towards something, like how might I be too energetic? Well, let's make this engaging for the people who are on this live. How might you, in spite of your best intentions, be accidentally causing the people in your world to hold back? Share that with us in the questions box. Search it's a great answer. question. Thanks. I got it from somebody who not only is really smart, but has amazing fashion sense. <laughs> you know, I, I remember when I reflected on that, my speed is one of my greatest assets. I move so fast. I get so much done. And I remember you saying, if you move so fast, it's like when you're walking with your kid and you race and you run ahead, you turn around and they just gave up. I've got a little two-year-old boy. My, my five-year-old girl will try to keep up with daddy. My two-year-old boy will be like, no, screw that. I'm done. I've realized in my business, not everybody's going to move at my speed. And I, instead, I have to ask questions that allow them to self-discover the path, let them chart the territory, support them along the way. Yeah. And, and, it's, such, and it's such a virtue, this idea of speed. And that's where this gets really complicated because as I dug into all these accidental diminisher tendencies, every one of them is a virtue. Like for me, I'll tell you one of mine, as people are, are maybe sharing some of theirs, one of mine is that I'm a preparer. Like, mm. I do my homework. In fact, you know, one of the things when I finished the book, I sent a manuscript to um, a colleague of mine who's written a number of amazing books, Carrie Patterson. Um, he's like, girl, can you write? 
And girl, have you done your homework? And I'm like, yes, I'm a homework doer. And and sometimes I come into things so prepared that other people don't have a chance. In fact, I remember a colleague once saying to me, they're like, Liz, you know, your ideas always sort of win the day. In a conversation or a meeting, I'm like, oh, that sounds like horribly oppressive. And, and then I was listening to him explain like why it was that I was sort of this accidental bully, if you will. And I was really concerned, like, was he going to like, was he going to tell me that I told people that their ideas weren't good? And he goes, yeah, he goes, you come into meetings having thought through things and you're so prepared and you come in like ready with ideas that nobody can, nobody else can sort of compete with your ideas because you've, mm-hmm. you're so thoughtful. And I'm like, oh, how is that a problem? And then as I thought about it, I'm like, it's a huge problem. And one of the things I did to fix this, one of these like small little domino sized fixes is I now, unless I really screw something up, every time I have a conversation or a meeting, I send the agenda out in advance, like 48 hours in advance, 24 if I'm not on my game. And not only do I put topics out there, I'm like, here are the questions that we're going to pursue. So it gives everyone else a chance to come in prepared and thoughtful. Mm. So that's one That's one of mine. I've got a few more. But what, do pe- what are people saying on chat? I'm I've got to do a little fiddling here so I can see what's actually. Phil said, um, I do too much myself and I don't give them a chance. For Kim, it was lack of clarity, getting down to the the weeds and the steps, but not sharing the bigger picture of why. Michael's an adjunct professor, word junkie. So at times his vocabulary intimidates intimidates people. Yeah, those are some examples. Yeah, and they're all things done with the best of intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about for me, it's compassion and compassion is one of my biggest strengths. But also in that, like, it's really hard for me to watch people struggle. And but saving them can also just be for me because it's hard for me to watch them struggle. They not, they may not. That struggle is of value to them. But right. realizing that that's hard to watch yourself. Oh, so much. We'll talk about that a little bit because I support can look a lot like saving if you don't have standards. So how do we as leaders, when we have people who are struggling and we want the best for them, we want them to be successful, how do you strike that tension to allow them to struggle well? Uh, let, me, let me share two stories. One was my own experience and one was something from a colleague. And um, so I was uh, interviewing in, in the process of writing this book and I'm interviewing someone named Jay Choi and he's a leader uh, in Korea. He's actually someone I know from his Stanford days and this is a phenomenal leader. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Liz, when your people are struggling, it's irresponsible not to help. And then he said, but you have to remember to hand the pen back. And um, mm. let's see if I have a, a, a pen here. I'll find one I haven't chewed on. Um, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got their stress out. It's mine. I, I chew pens. It's a brand new one. And, and he said, you got to hand your pen, the pen back. And then he described the scenario. So it's, it's 2 a.m. Uh, in a conference room, and this is at the McKinsey office in Seoul. Jay Choi is one of the the managing directors there. And there's this project team that's gathered around the conference table and it's 2 a.m. and they've got a huge presentation the very next day to their most important client. And they're stuck, you know, like they're dead in the water. They have tons of data, but, and and some analysis, but they don't have a, a message, a story for this client. And the project leaders up at the board and Finally, out of exasperation, 2 a.m. turns to Jay and said, like, kind of like, I don't know what the invitation was, but like, hey, do you have any ideas here? And Jay, he's been sitting back as the executive sponsor for this project and he's been listening and, and he does have ideas. And 
And the project leader hands Jay the pen. He grabs the pen. It's probably a whiteboard pen. I have one of those. Hand- oh, yeah, I have it right here. You know, he's got one of these handy. And it goes up to the board and he starts like just sort of like mapping it out. He's storyboarding this. And you can imagine what the team is thinking. They're not thinking, oh, like, you know, Mr. Big Shot, he's hogging. They're like, he's saving the day. Like we are stuck and we've got this presentation. And, you know, they're essentially cheering him on. But this multiplier logic in him, he knows this is dangerous territory that he's in. Like what happens when he takes too much pity and saves the day? So he he kind of gets halfway through a storyboard and he stops and he says, I mean, this is incredible restraint. I often wonder would I have had this level of restraint because he is heroically saving the day. He stops and he says, you know, here are a few ideas to get you started. Why don't you, you know, take it from there and see what you can do with this? And he hands the pen back to the project leader and he sits down. So, you know, what he said is to me was when your team is struggling, it's irresponsible not to help. But you've got to remember to hand the pen back. And of course, the pen in this case represents um, ownership and accountability. It's like, how do you help but not strip away ownership and responsibility? Because when you're the senior person and you help, you've essentially taken it over. It's like you've ripped the pen out of someone else's hand. And so you've got to do explicit things to say, you know what, back to you. Like, hey, I was happy to help but you're still in the lead. Like here are a few ideas to get you going. You take it from here. You should be the one to give the presentation tomorrow. If you want to live an extraordinary life, it requires that you master something. And it only has to be one thing. When it comes to growing a great business, I remember asking the question, what's the one thing I can master? Such that by mastering it would make turning the one thing into an extraordinary business easier or unnecessary? The answer, recruiting great people. The challenge is finding great people is hard. That's why we're excited to introduce you to one of our sponsors for the One Thing Podcast, ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there and we hope you consider ZipRecruiter to find them. Right now, our listeners of the One Thing Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. All you have to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash productive. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash productive. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One of the things that was really striking in here is you talked about supersizing it, right? Issuing uh, challenges that aren't at the current level of someone's role, but ahead of it. And when I think about our hiring process, she's going through it right now. We threw out a really big challenge to her that is probably beyond what is normally, well, it's definitely beyond what's normally comfortable for you, but it gives you the opportunity to grow into it. What does it mean to issue those types of challenges? And how do we go about making sure that it's empowering and that it's not so big that it's paralyzing? Yeah, you know, so supersizing someone's job is essentially giving someone a job that's a size or two too big. And you mentioned you have little ones, uh, kids, and you've probably gone shopping for shoes for them. And unless you've got a lot of cash to waste and you like shopping, like how does a wise parent shop for shoes for toddlers? They buy them on sale and in every size. (laughs) 
<laughs> Every side, it's just like, you're going to go into these like black loafers. It's going to be good for you for years. Um, right, right. Yeah, you buy them a size too big, and you know you rarely buy them to fit because you know that's going to last you for you know a couple weeks, a month. So you buy them a size too big, and when your you know daughter says, "But daddy, my feet are flopping around in these shoes," like it's a pretty universal reaction. Parents say all around the world, "It's oh, don't worry, you'll grow into them." It's how you have to give people. Um, roles is a size like if someone's really adventurous like maybe if someone got thrown into a senior management role at 24 and got told to do something outrageous and that was their norm you know a size too big let them grow into it and and I think this is the other part of not rescuing is knowing how to size a challenge because if you give someone something that's three sizes too big Maybe adrenaline kicks in, so to speak. But a lot of times people go, no, no, no. Like, I'm going to fail at that. And and they hold back. So how do you pick something that's too big that they need to grow into, mm. but not so big that they're going to become paralyzed by this? Um, I often call this picking the right size wave. And it was about, I learned this on a beach where my son just refused to take coaching from mom that if he went out into the big waves, he was going to drown. And, you know, I had to make a decision, like, how do I help him understand this? And I'm like, I've got to let a wave take him. Like, he's only going to learn this from mother nature. And I was looking for just that day on this beach, this is on Kanapali Beach in Hawaii. It's like, how do I find a wave that's going to knock him over, but not sweep him out to sea? And like, once I found that wave, I let him take a tumble. And I, I, that moment, you know, helped me see that. I think one of the, the things that we have to do, like one of the essential skills that we need as, as leaders is learning how to size challenges. And maybe even knowing, do you tend to be overstretcher or an understretcher of people? In fact, I'd love to do a little informal poll on chat. Chat yeah. is just like, you know, do you tend to overstretch? Meaning you're kind of like going to kill people. You give them something that's so big that they might become paralyzed. They might fail. Or do you tend to be an understretcher, play a conservative? Let me give you something that I know you can do. And maybe people don't grow as fast around you as they could. So put that in the questions box. Which are you? (laughs) I don't know. It, It depends on the challenge. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it varies. I think I tend to definitely overstretch people like just throw way too big of a challenge at them. And then they go, they start. Bah! I guess there's also like that exercising possibility and going there for the big challenge, but then value engineering it back and understanding like, okay, what, what can you do now? Or what are the steps that we can take or throwing the life raft out there? Sort of like, yeah, you're in, in the big waves, but what do you need when you're out in that storm? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can rescue and help, but if we can help people get into a cycle where they never need a rescue, People are going to grow at their at their fastest. I'm an overstretcher. And I think it's because I like big challenges. I like a big challenge, a lot of space, give me elbow room. And I think for years I practiced sort of like lead as you wish you were led, which isn't a bad strategy, but it's actually sort of a fallacious strategy. It's like I've learned like lead the way people want to be led because not everyone wants that kind of of challenge. And you don't have to read their brain, their mind either. You can ask them. I think that's something that we sometimes underestimate is that you can ask people what they prefer and, and then test it out. Yeah, I think Kaylin's exactly right. You know, I often get people who really, really want to be this multiplier like leader. They want to stretch people, grow people, use people at their fullest. And they're like, 
trying to engineer this, okay, well, what should I do? And how will I know what their native genius is? And how will I know the right challenge to give them that's exactly the right size? And I can see them kind of doing all these machinations in their mind about how to do this. And usually my coaching is, well, have you asked them? <laughs> you know, like I find this to be kind of the universal leadership strategy is ask people, like, what is the challenge you wish we were asking you to take on right now? How big of a stretch are you ready for? Like, what's something I could give you that would make you nervous, but also make you even more excited than nervous? And people will tell you, is this one of these writer downers that you talked about, Jeff? You got one. You got points for you. That's a good one. Well, and when you were asking that, my brain started bubbling, like the idea that also that challenge will be very much aligned with their native genius. So you start to discover because they'll they'll be drawn to those challenges that give them areas to shine and that other people on the team won't have those things, you know? Absolutely. I think you're exactly right on that. And we, I think we can take on much bigger challenges when we work within our native genius. Now, I haven't studied this, so it's a little bit irresponsible of me to be supposing this without having evidence to support it. But I think if I'm being asked to do something outside of my native genius, and for those who are new to this term, native genius is simply the term I use to describe what is it? It's beyond a strength. It's like, what is it that we do easily and freely and naturally? What are our minds built to do? Mm. Or what are what are we going to do whether people want us to do it or not. Um, and I'll tell you, I've, I've managed for a lot of years and I'm also the parent of four children and, and have been married for 31 years. And what I've learned from all of that is it's a lot easier to use, figure out what people are good at and find ways to put that to work than it is to get people to be good at things that they're not good at. Like that doesn't go very far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say, Kaylin, to your point that if someone is being stretched but it's in their native genius. I think they can take a stretch that's too, maybe even three sizes too big because there's like this inner confidence of like, I've never done this before, but you know what? I have this core capability. Like I'm going to a foreign land. Like I'm a stranger in this land. I don't know what I'm doing because this challenge is big, but you know what? I'm taking something with me in my suitcase that will help me navigate this. Mm, that's yeah. super good. I think one thing you you said, Liz, that, also is really important for people to understand. You talked about the experience of your child being in the waves and you're saying, don't go out too far because you'll get hammered. Nope. You just need to let mother nature, you need to let the wave teach the lesson. How many of us are unwilling to allow mother nature to teach the lessons? We feel the need to step in and tell them what the consequences are and who's really the better teacher. You telling them what the consequences or allowing them to learn through experiencing it. Oh, yeah. And Mother Nature is the purest teacher, like literally out in nature. There is no purer teacher than to find yourself sort of stranded in an in inclement weather or something. But, you know, what's the equivalent of Mother Nature in your business? Mm-hmm. Customer feedback, market feedback, like market feedback is 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 pure feedback. And we have to get comfortable doing this. Um, this is one where I've I've worked on this personally for years. And in fact, there was someone recently who was considering joining our firm. And she said, oh, I went and talked to a a colleague that I worked with at Oracle for 10 years. And his name is Ben. And she said, I went and talked to Ben and said, what's it like to work for Liz? And then she told me what Ben said. and, and And she said, yeah, this is what Ben said. He said, Liz will stand back and let you fail. And I'm like, he said that. Yes, I will. <laughs> I'm like, no, that wasn't my reaction. I'm like, wait a minute. 
this guy worked for me for 10 years and that's what he said. Like, that's what he remembered. Not like, hey, Liz will support you. She's got your back. That's what he said. At first, I really bristled. Like, ooh, I don't want to be known as the person who will stand back and let you fail. But he meant it in the best possible way. She's going to give you a challenge. And then she's okay. Like, it's it's like saying the leader has enough confidence in him or herself to handle that failure. But it's saying I have enough confidence in the people I work with that I can watch them fail and not give up on them. Like, I can, I can see you experience failure, but it doesn't change you. It doesn't change your capability. It doesn't change how I feel about you. It's like you're smart and you're capable. Yeah, and we're going to skin our knees and we're going to make some mistakes, but I can watch you fail and not lose confidence in you. What is that mindset shift that people need to go through here? Because we talk a lot about leverage and we know the number one reason that people don't use leverage is it won't get done as well. It won't get done as fast. They just don't trust it, right? What is that one thing that we are holding on to in our mind that we must shift to move from diminisher to multiplier? So I, I'll share what I found in the research, this diminishing mindset versus the multiplier. But what I want to do is actually ask people to go to chat on this. And I'm hoping people have scanned back through their career, like someone you worked around who was a diminisher, could have been a boss, a colleague, a little league coach, um, a roommate, a spouse, like <laughs> it, it paid. And as you think about this leader, what did he or she do? Okay, start with that. But what I want you to put in the chat box is what did they believe to be true about you, about them, about their role, about their value? Like, what did they believe to be true? This person who shut down limited, unused capability in others. And maybe we can fill up the chat box with that. You're such a researcher. I love it. (laughs) And I don't want anyone to chat this next one in, but if you've already written that down and sent it in, would you be thinking about the multiplier, someone around whom you were at your best? You like you scaled big challenges. You had series of successes. Hard things got done. You were at your smartest and most capable. And and lock in this person's belief as well. What did he or she belief about you, about their role. So what we are seeing is um, they believed I couldn't grow into a different or higher position. They were not of a growth mindset. Uh, There was a lack of trust that I could execute. They believed their role was to be nice to me and protect me from getting upset or Mm -hmm. experiencing negative emotions. Mm -hmm. My multiplier believed in me and gave me autonomy. I didn't, they didn't take time to get to know me. Interesting. So would people also now put in the multiplier? What did your multiplier believe? So if you're writing the diminisher thing, like stop at this point, because otherwise we're going to get it confused. And we'll probably be able to ferret out which is which. I'll share my my experience early on in my career. um, I was put into a management position really early on, like yourself. And I figured out that all the leadership led through intimidation and fear and micromanagement. And I remember asking the question, what habits it will, will I form in this organization and what type of life will that create? And I didn't like those answers. And then I flipped that and compared it to, for example, my relationship with Jay. He is constantly handing the pen back to me. I'm constantly being issued supersized challenges and told him that they have the absolute confidence that I can figure out. And he's always there for me when I need a hug or, you know, need when I'm dealing with challenges, but they're never telling me the answer. They're always teaching me how to think so I can get what I need when I need it. See, this is my wish. Like that makes, that like freezes me up in time and space because Jeff, my wish 
is that everyone had a boss like that. Mm. You know, and, and and that doesn't mean that, you know, he doesn't come with some downsides and some weaknesses or even some character flaws like that we all have a few of. It's that ability to to hold this belief. Well, I'm, I'm going to like resist sharing what I found in this research. I want to see what people yeah, so found their multiplier bosses did. So let's see here. They truly listened to my opinions and valued my insights and feedback. I felt heard. Uh, multiply, they gave me boundaries but didn't overstep. Often flipped questions that I asked back to me to solve. And we don't have much more. It doesn't seem like people have a lot of experience with multipliers. Well, you know, unfortunately, people have more experience with diminishers than, than multipliers. You know, it is my hope that everyone has a multiplier. You know, and, and maybe one of my very specific hopes is I'd love to see everyone have a multiplier as their very first boss. Like mm-hmm. I was lucky. I landed at Oracle in a time when the company was growing really fast. And I had a few bosses that believed in me. Like I actually went back to Bob Shaver, the one who gave me this irresponsible responsibility. And I said, and it was when I was working on multipliers, I said, Bob, was it that you saw some deep capability, like genius even, if you will, in me <laughs> or perhaps, or, or were you guys just desperate? He wrote back, he said, ah, Liz, little of both. It was a little of both. (laughs) But I was lucky in that I landed into a situation where it's like, you know what? You got a brain and a pulse, go. We have a big job for you. But also I landed with a boss who was competent enough in his own capability and, and mature enough as a leader that he could allow me to take these on. And he said, you know, Liz, it probably felt like you, like you were up on this high wire but you know, we had a safety net under you. Like we weren't going to let you fail. And it wasn't a rescue boat as much as it was a safety net. Like there were mechanisms that we made sure that you had what you need, like that we had your back and those kinds of things. When I studied these two kinds of leaders, I focused first on the behavior. What do these two different leaders do differently? And we could talk for ad nauseum about that. I don't think the behavior is as important as these mindsets because the diminisher tends to hold a mindset that nobody's going to figure it out without me. And, you know, when you come into work every day, convinced or even just wondering, like, are people going to be able to figure this out without me? It it leads to a whole set of behaviors. It leads to, you know, micromanaging, you know, making all the decisions, directing people, telling people what to do. Versus if you hold the mindset of a multiplier, which is, it's a very simple mindset. It's that people are smart. And they're going to figure it out, mm-hmm. which, as someone pointed out, which is kind of the essence of a growth mindset. You know, um, I was so delighted when Carol Dweck was so delighted when she looked at all the research findings because she was like, wow, this is like an application of growth mindset. When you not only hold a growth mindset for yourself, when you actually hold, in some ways, a universal growth mindset, which is, yeah, you know, okay, maybe there are some dummies in the world. Like we have some evidence that there are some dumb things done in the world. But when you fundamentally believe that people, like human intelligence exists inside of all of us and that we have the ability to figure it out. And and when we stop asking the question, is this person smart? I've asked that question. If you have people who work for you, who you've kind of said like, Ah, wow, I'm not seeing a lot here. Like, is this person even bright or smart? And instead we ask, in what way is this person smart? Mm. Like, what is the intelligence that they bring to the team? And when we really believe that people are going to make mistakes, and of course they need direction and they need challenge and, you know, they need you to set a target, 
but they can figure out how to get there. It, it causes us to do all the right kinds of things. Folks, one thing we hope that you will do based on this episode is get a copy of Multipliers today. We know that since you are listening to audio right now, you are likely an Audible fan who is a sponsor for this show. If you go to audible.com slash one thing, that's audible.com slash one thing, or you can text one thing to the number 500 500 If you're not an Audible customer yet, you'll get a free credit. So you can get a copy of Multipliers for free, which is awesome. And if you are currently an Audible customer like myself, this is very, very worth your credit. I have listened to this book now three times. I've got the hard copy. It's right in front of me. Go to audible.com slash one thing. That's audible.com slash one thing. Or you can text one thing to the number 500-500. With that, let's get back into the conversation with Liz Wiseman. Everything we've talked to up till this point has been about how we can become a multiplier. For those who are listening to this, who happen to report to a diminisher, what should they be doing? Mm. You know, there's a, um, I guess, a, a famous episode from Seinfeld. Like, have we all watched the series? And it's the where George Costanza, Cast- Costanza. <laughs> He decides that at work, he's going to do exactly the opposite of what his judgment tells him to do. Do you remember this episode? <laughs> and, and he does the exact opposite. And it's just, it works like a charm. In this case, it's, it's really a situation we have to do exactly opposite of what our intuition tells us to do. So let's suppose just hypothetically that you work for a micromanaging, controlling, directive kind of boss. Can I, can I give a real example? There's somebody here. Please. I'm not their name because this is a little bit more sensitive, but they say, my boss is an understretcher. She wants absolute consistent perfection at level one before I even get to try level two. I feel like I have nothing to work for because I, she can't even see or tell me what level two will look like. Wow. So it's like all over everything till it's just exactly perfect. Okay. Um, so there's some whole strategies and perfectionism is actually one of the ways that we can end up accidentally diminishing. And I, okay, so I think maybe this is the first part of the strategy is to remember, okay, you've got a diminishing boss. Remember, lock it in your head that most of the diminishing that's done and most of the diminishing that's done to you is accidental. Mm. I mean, this person isn't staying up nights thinking about ways to torture you at work. They're not thinking about how can I show people that they're stupid. They're not like thinking, how can I show that I'm the smartest? Most of them are trying to do a good job. And part of this is the ratio. We have, most of us have one, maybe two bosses and a boss tends to have, I don't know, 10, a hundred more people that work for them. So think about the ratios. How much time do we spend thinking about them? Versus how much time do they spend thinking about us? Mm. Like we think, oh man, she's finding ways to torture me. That's not the case. In fact, most bosses are moving so fast that they're just not thinking. So I think part of the strategy is to know that most of that diminishing is accidental. And instead of focusing on the behavior, focus on the intention. She wants to see me successful. Here's what happens when we respond to diminishing with our natural intuitive knee-jerk reaction. So let's say we have a micromanaging, controlling boss. We tend to respond to that with judgment. We deem it to be wrong. Not only do we deem it to be wrong kind of on a managerial level, like, hey, that's just kind of not the way leaders are expected to lead these days. 
like it's old fashioned, it's antiquated, it's ineffective. We tend to judge it wrong on a, I think, a very deep moral level. Like, whoa, someone is trying to take from me this like innate right I have for self-determination. Like, you know, like our bill of rights gets violated by people. And so we tend to judge them. And as we judge them, we tend to respond with criticism. We stop listening and we tend to push them away. Okay, pop quiz. Put this on uh, chat. What happens when you try to keep a micromanaging boss at bay, out of your business, out of your work? <laughs> what happens? They want to yeah. manage more because they can't. They can't get their hands on it. They don't have visibility into this thing that they want to control. What happens when you tell a know-it-all that they're wrong? What happens when you argue with a know-it-all? What happens when you try to usurp control from a really controlling boss? See, they tend to double down, and now they're going to do more and we have this descending spiral, which unfortunately ends up not just with one diminisher intact, you end up with two diminishers. Because as you're kind of giving this person the straight arm, keeping them away, criticizing, not listening, you actually have adopted all of these diminishing behaviors yourself. So now you have a standoff between two diminishers. Here's what the the, the more of the George Castagna um, approach looks like, is instead of responding to bad leadership with criticism, which is totally natural, mm. responded with the hallmark of multiplier leadership. The number one trait we see in multiplier leaders is intellectual curiosity. They're curious about possibilities, as you described. They want to know what other people know. They, they ask questions. They ask why. So what if you responded to that perfectionist boss, this controlling boss, and said, I wonder why she thinks it needs to be perfect? Like, uh, I wonder what pressure she's feeling from above her. I wonder what he needs from me to feel confident to give me the space I need. Like, what if you displayed upward empathy and you took their perspective? And, and what happens is when you then start asking questions, wanting to know what they think, inviting them into your space, you're extending respect and trust. And what happens when we extend respect and trust to most normal, psychologically healthy human beings. What do they tend to do in return? They extend trust and space. Like it's strange that when we invite micromanagers and diminishers into our space, they tend to give us more space. Like invite them to the party rather than keeping them out. And and I want to be clear, I am in no way promising that you will change that person. They probably are still going to have their diminishing tendencies. What you're going to do, they're probably just going to go diminish someone else, which if you're just looking at it selfishly is actually a good outcome for you. But we don't change the person, we change the dynamic. You know, sometimes the best way out of a diminishing situation is to is to multiply up, to say, I'm going to bring out the best in my boss. I'm going to listen and learn. And, you know, maybe I don't have a boss who comes along and says, Liz, What's your native genius? How can we use it? What's a here's a stretch challenge that will engage you? What if I use my boss's native genius? Like Ron Johnson used to do this at Apple, just to a beautiful art form. So Ron Johnson ran the retail division at Apple and he was brought in by Steve. Ron's a total retail genius. And, you know, we know that and what he and Apple produced. It would have been so easy for him knowing that he had a boss who had some diminishing tendencies and was prone to like being very hands-on and directive, he could have either tried to keep Steve out of his work or he could have just like capitulated like, hey, whatever boss, you know, you call the shots. He didn't do this. He would go into meetings with Steve 
And he told me what he would do. Um, he would take into Steve his team's finest work. Like, hey, we're going to put a blueprint together for, you know, a new flagship store, maybe like the Fifth Avenue store in Manhattan. And he would take it in. And instead of trying to argue with Steve and try to show Steve how brilliant he was and how brilliant the work was, he used his boss's genius. See, Ron knew what Steve was brilliant at. You know, and, and I think, you know, there's a lot written about Steve and what he was so brilliant at. Ron really understood that what his true brilliance was is he made stuff better. He took kind of cruddy design and made it brilliant. He wasn't like an innovator from scratch. He made other people's stuff way better. So Ron would go into Steve and he would ask a single question. You, I mean, you could already guess the question he's going to ask. Take it How in. How can this be better? What can we do to make this better? And instead of a standoff you know, or a steamroll over, over his ideas, now Steve is like on his side of the table, like, okay, well, you know what? Let's what if we took out the cement stairs and we put in plexiglass or what if we removed this or what if we, and then they would walk out with something they created together, like brilliant work made even more brilliant. I think all brilliant work requires like multiplier leadership, but it doesn't have to come from the top. Yeah. Like why not let that great leader be you? Yeah. That sort of leads into this next question where, um, they're asking like, how can you shift from a diminisher culture? So if your company culture is diminisher, how can you lead that into a multiplier culture? What does that look like? How can you promote it? Yeah. You know what? I, I have to say, I'm a big fan of the one thing. Like I have this such deep belief that we can do hard things and actually, you know, that we're built for challenge and that we thrive. Actually, I did a whole research project and it studies that we actually are at our very best when we're dealing with big challenges. So like, Yes, like give me big challenges, hard thing to do. But you know what? One, like one at a time. Like for me personally, I can do so many hard things, but please do not give me two of them. It's almost like it's my deal with God. Like I can take challenge and hardship, just not two at a time. And when it comes to making change for us personally, as well as our organization, I really believe in the one thing. Like what is one thing that you can do differently? And how do you turn that one thing into a habit? For some people, it's, I think one of the most powerful things, (laughs) I'm like, I believe this down in my soul. And um, for me, like if if you're trying to figure out like, what can I do to be more of a multiplier? There's a lot of things. You can play fewer chips. You can ask more questions. You can offer stretch challenge, supersize someone's job, find someone's native genius, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot more, but just pick one thing and turn it into a habit. Figure out what is the thing that triggers my accidental diminisher behavior. Like, don't just say, well, here's the bad thing I'm doing. Here's the good thing I want to do. That's not going to get you far. That'll get you a week and then you'll forget. And circumstances will pull you back. What's the trigger? Like, does silence trigger you over contributing? Does someone struggling trigger the rescue? Like, what is it that triggers it? Look for it and turn that into a habit. And and then how do you do this across a whole enterprise? Of course, that's a complicated uh, question and the answer has a lot of parts, but I'll share one insight, the power of one. Here's one thing I've learned is that and it is counterintuitive is the organizations that make this change that really build multiplier cultures where there's been a lot of diminishing. They don't talk a lot about multipliers. And I don't mean the book. I mean the concept. They don't put posters on the wall saying, oh, multipliers are talent magnets and liberators and challengers, blah, blah, blah. They talk about diminishing. They talk, they've legitimized that conversation. So I know a culture is healthy when people 
can talk about their own diminishing tendencies. Like, oh, I'm a total rescuer. Like for me, I'm an idea guy. Like my team knows, like Liz knows she's an idea guy. Throw things at her in meetings when she gets in this mode or say things to her like, Liz, do you want us to drop what we're doing and and work on this? No, no, that's ridiculous. Stick on your one thing. I'm just ideating for fun. They're like, you're our boss. We take you seriously. When you come up with harebrained things, we think we're supposed to do it. Like when that conversation is out in the open and people can laugh at themselves and even laugh at each other, like, oh, Galen, you're so in rescue mode. Like I see your heart, your compassion is like ready to explode. Like you look like a saint to me right now. Okay. I need you to embrace <laughs> your inner demon. And she gets that all the time. It's true. So when people can laugh about that, when they can talk about the diminishing tendencies of the leader mm. and laugh about that, not laugh at him or her, but laugh at like, because it comes from a good place. And when a culture, when people can see that some of our very values we prize causes diminishing. So like when the one thing company can laugh at the fact that, oh, we're so obsessed about one thing that sometimes we don't give people the opportunity to juggle. And maybe there's some diminishing that comes from being so focused. Oh, isn't that funny that we do that? Mm-hmm. And, when, <laughs> and when people can uh-huh. talk about, ha, 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 not so funny. Uh, oh, no, we, we got our own baggage. <laughs> but when people can talk about, it's when we learn to see inside the cracks and we learn to see that what comes of our best intentions can be what is most diminishing. Yeah. When that conversation is out in the open, you are on your way. And I think obsess about diminishing, aspire to be better leaders, like understand the practices and the mindset of the leaders, but have open conversations about diminishing ways. So let me ask you this. We've got about four minutes left till the top of the hour. I'm taking everything you've said, and then I'm, in my mind, just understanding our whole thing is helping people take back control of their time and getting clarity on how they want to invest it. What's one thing that someone can start doing with their time such that by doing it will allow them eventually to become a multiplier? How can they start to manage their time differently so that it leads to them becoming a multiplier? I'm going to offer one thing. It is look at your to-do list. I pull out mine and I would say, what is on my to-do list that is hard that I can give to somebody else? Mm. Like I'm not finding time for it. And maybe it's even easy for me, but like, and no, it's something that's hard. It's something we think we have to do. And I have done this so many times where I'm like, oh no, this is hard. I need to do it. See, I become a protector of others. Like there's no time to even rescue because I'm not even letting people do something hard. Often we become like banyan trees that as leaders, we we provide comfort and shade to others. Oh, don't take that meeting. It'll be contentious. I'll do it. But see, like nothing grows under a banyan tree. So to find something on your to-do list, maybe you don't have time for it. Maybe you're not getting to it. Maybe it's just hard. Maybe it's even something enticing. Like it's a juicy thing for you to work on. Like give it to somebody else. And I'll share for me, I, I understood that many of the ways that I, when I showed up as a diminisher was because of my speed or because just there's things that are happening so fast in the business that you're just reacting. I had to develop the habit. I'm in the middle of a 66 day challenge right now to forming the power habit of every single day, purposely stopping and identifying the questions that I can ask the people in my world so that I'm not telling them what to do. I'm not reacting, asking them the questions so they can figure out 
what needs to be done next? Let, let me let me tell you one short story. Um, so there's a guy named Dave Havlick at Salesforce, and he had a big executive job there. He went through one of the multipliers workshops. He decided he wanted to do something multiplier-like, and he decided that instead of that he wanted to practice asking more questions. He goes home from the workshop that night. His team, someone on the team says, hey, Dave, we're waiting for you to think this through and figure out a staffing plan for dealing with this. He hasn't had time to do it. And he he's like, oh, do I stay up late and do this? Like, And then he said, okay, instead of giving them the answer, he asked them, could, you know, what would you guys want to do to do it? He basically gave this over to them, asked a question, gave it over to them. His team was like, wow, we get to figure this out. He continued to do this, putting ownership onto his team. I write up a little case for Harvard um, Business Review, and I'm about to publish it. I run it by Dave, of course. And Dave says to me, he goes, Liz, you didn't quite get it, which as an author, I'm like, oh, ouch, ouch, ouch. I didn't quite capture what happened. He said, you described how liberating it was for my team when I gave them ownership. I asked them the question. I put it back on them. He said, but what you missed is how liberating this was for me, mm-hmm. he, he said, I used to work until 2 a.m. regularly, like always chasing the to-do list, never enough time in the day. And he says, I don't do that anymore. He said, and my, I've given, my team has been liberated. They get to step up and I get to settle into a sustainable place. Like sometimes the lazy man's approach is the way to find the multiplier approach. I love that. Share what's wrong with others. Where can people learn more about you and multipliers? Oh, well, um, I'll go to the book. The book is more interesting than me. Trust me. Um, uh, the book is multipliersbooks.com. You can find it, I don't know, everywhere. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, bookstores. And about me, let me see. I'm at Liz Wiseman on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and then our firm is The Wiseman Group. We're a bunch of boring researchers. <laughs> but you can find us there. Clearly not. Well, folks, my challenge to you, and for those of you who are here live, what's the one thing that you can do based on this conversation, such that by doing it, will make everything else easier or unnecessary? Share that with us in the questions box if you are here live. And for those of you who are listening to this on the podcast, after the fact, pause the episode, really think it through, and actually dare to put it on your calendar and take action. Liz, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And, uh, We'll be in touch. It's been my pleasure. Well, there you have it. Our conversation with Liz Wiseman, New York Times bestselling author of Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. I am joined here by community manager extraordinaire, Kaylin Less. Yeah, hi. That was awesome. What are your thoughts walking away from that? She's a badass. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Yeah. You know, it's... It gave me the opportunity to, to look back on a lot of the leadership that I've had and and also to look forward in the kind of leader that I want to be. Mm. And that was really, it was a huge value. Tell me more about the leader you want to be. I think, like she mentioned, my biggest strengths are also my biggest weaknesses. Mm. And so they're sort of strengths unchecked that suddenly become this area for confusion or for me not giving other people the opportunity to be their, be their awesome. So really trying to dig into that and look at what, just explore options, you know? Yeah. And I think something interesting, people who've been following the podcast for a while know that I've been on this road to develop, developing the habit of asking great questions. 
which the thing that you don't know is Kaylin and I did our 30-day review, which I've been so intentional about asking you great questions. And you actually exposed a way that doing that had a diminishing effect. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So as a, I'm a very curious person. So questions are something that I see awesome value in all sorts. However, I found that as Jeff was asking me a lot of questions, sometimes I felt like he already knew the answer. So it felt less like an, an honest, like, look for my my insights and more like a quiz. And that was tough to because then I couldn't even find my own insights because I was looking for what he wanted me to say, not what I wanted to say. And so sort of examining like when, I guess I challenged you to maybe just think about the way you're asking questions or which questions you're asking. Well, the, th- the thing that I got clear on is if I'm asking a question and I know the answer, I can tell you that I know the answer. I'm, I'm asking you first because I want your insights unbiased. And the ultimate question to ask is when I'm legitimately seeking your perspective and I legitimately do not know the answer. And the reason I wanted to share this with people is we're all on our own road to mastery. I'm sure there are things that you are doing that multiplies the people around you and there are things that you do that may be diminishing what people can do by being inside your world. This was is been a power habit that I have formed that has had so many benefits. And this is the first time that I actually saw a diminishing effect from it. I just love that we had the conversation. You were able to call me out. Yeah, I think what's what's awesome is that every time you lead people, it's always going to be a different experience. No matter how great a leader you are, the person that you are leading will inform how you navigate that path. And so really staying agile and flexible in your approach. I think that's what that's what great leaders do. Yeah. So our question for you is, where are you, in spite of your best intentions, accidentally causing the people in your world to hold back? What's the one thing that you can do such that by doing it would allow you to multiply the talents of the people in your world where you may be currently diminishing? We would love if you would leave us a review on this show based on that. Go ahead and say you listened to the episode about multipliers and you discovered that whatever you discovered about yourself, we would love to see that feedback. It also helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact. So thank you for all that you do following the show. If you're someone new to the show and you are not yet subscribed, you can go ahead and hit that subscribe button so all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your device. And if you'd like to see who we have coming up for our One Thing webinar series, go to the onething.com slash webinar. And that's with the number one in the URL. We do one live webinar a month with a best-selling author, a way to expand your mind and provide ways that you can better live the one thing. Thanks so much. And we look forward to being with you in the next episode. 